Welcome to the Strategy Mom Podcast. Tune in for everything you need to know to stay in the know regarding the automotive industry. Here's your host, Jason Harris. Hey, 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 what's going on, Podcast Nation? It is Jason Harris here, and thank you for joining me another episode of Strategy with Jason. Today, I'm talking to Andrew Sweet. We're talking all kinds of cool stuff. We're talking about the industry. We're talking about the future of the industry. We're talking about some branding. You know, we're also talking a little bit how consumers sell their vehicle. So I'm really excited about getting into today's conversation. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to jam with me. Yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's probably we're probably about our year anniversary from seeing each other back in Vegas before. Dude, is that crazy? Is it crazy that it's been it's like been a year? It's like it's just boom, like the flash is just gone. It's like it's it's crazy to think that, you know, we were in at at Las Vegas and NADA. And then I think it was not even a week and a half by the time I got back where it just went. The world just imploded and everything got shut down, especially where, at least where I was here in Toronto. Um, hey, for uh, let's let's do this to kick off kind of today's podcast. Uh, for everybody that's uh, watching and listening right now, I thought it was, it's always kind of fun to start off our podcast with a little origin story. So, because uh, I find it super interesting how people got in the business. So, so, Andrew, how did you get started in this crazy little world we call the automotive industry? So, origin story, uh, the, the two-minute version is, uh, my entire background's in sales, sales leadership, main, mainly in the software space. Did a lot of my growing up with brands like uh, Career Builder and Monster.com uh, in the human capital talent acquisition space. Actually, most of the time I spent in the healthcare space. So I was like a healthcare expert for a while. Um, and between going from like normal corporate jobs to full blown entrepreneur, um, I worked for a company called uh, HireView, helping them start a uh, or grow a healthcare practice. And I mm-hmm. met Tyler uh, uh, Hall, who's the co-founder uh, and Drivably. Um, and he was already doing a little side side hustles. And we got thick as thieves working on a few projects there. And we just kind of decided like, hey, let's do something together. We both knew that we were ready to get out of, I guess, working for other people. Um, and we, we had a, a handful of ideas that we thought would be interesting and I'll never forget it. So at the time I was living in Chicago when we first met my wife's job, brought us out to Arizona, uh, where Tyler lived. Uh, and as soon as we got out here, I have a giant whiteboard in my office, which I'm not in my office right now. Cause my wife kicks me out when she works projects, she gets <laughs> the, the suite and I get, you know, regulated to the guest bedroom. Nice. Um, but we literally mapped out all the industries Um, what we thought the problems were and tried to map out what were the established software providers, vendors. And, you know, uh, outside of that, we just said, Hey, automotive, um, really big market, uh, fragmented, a lot of supply chain inefficiencies, like, you know, kind of this old school brick and mortar mentality, like, Mm -hmm. Hey, let's Mm -hmm. kick around some ideas. Um, and we just kept coming back to it one, cause we both kind of like cars. Tyler had some really cool exposure to the car industry when he was in college. He was, you know, uh, flipping cars, um, uh, to kind of pay his way through, uh, through college, which was super illegal and how he was doing it. But, you know, I think it's, we've gotten, <laughs> we, we, past call, we the, call those curbsiders, by the way, that's what we call Yeah. Them. I think he got through the statute of limitations. So I think I could talk about that. Um, and he actually did a few little cool projects in the automotive space around that same time, but had been away from it for a long while. And we thought it would be a great idea. Like, Hey, maybe we could stand up a car dealership and 
source all of our inventory um, through the private sector. We're like, we're not going to buy from auctions. We're just going to stand up this little start or this little independent lot. Um, and we'll buy everything off the street. Um, and we did that. We did cool. it for like a year and a half. Um, it was a very expensive R and D project, which Tyler spent, you know, he probably ran 80% of that thing every day, all day, where I was still moonlighting doing some other stuff. But right away we started getting exposed to like all the challenges that, you know, people like you and everybody else who've been around the business forever knew about. But the, the ones that we kept coming back to was like what I would call the tribalism around buying. Mm-hmm. Um, how the information was given to us or provided to us through the, the fleet providers or like the, the other large wholesalers. And I'm like, this is a disaster. Um, so we started building it's, products right away. It's a little right bit of a, a mixed bag there, right? Like it's a, yeah. it's a tough place to be. I love this. I can picture this in my head, right, Andrew? I can, I can see you and Tyler, big monster whiteboard, probably scribbles all over the bloody thing for days. Then you guys decide you're like, the hell with it. If we're going to get into this space, we better go out and and cut our teeth and, and do it ourselves. You know, you start buying cars, you start selling cars. I imagine it was an expensive education, but a great education all to get there. So, so then tell me a little bit, because I, I love the fact that you guys have, you know, this initiative to helping customers, you know, sell their <laughs> own cars. And, and and I'm imagining a lot of what that is is just from the, the pains that you guys have gone through and just kind of learning through it. So, you know, kind of you know, tell me kind of how that conversation first started and, and what would you say like some of the basic like one-on-ones of how, you know, uh, consumers can sell their cars themselves? I mean, like the if we go back to our original, let's call it thesis around like, hey, if we buy, if we buy everything from the public, there's just a ton of more margin uh, mm-hmm. in those deals. Um we could probably charge a premium for those cars. And plus we're, we're probably getting a new retail customer, right? That's the most obvious basic things. Um, what we found, what we found in dealing with the customers is that we made it super simple and we didn't lowball them. And like, once they figured it out that it wasn't a scam, like we had no problem uh, getting people to meet with us and want to sell our car. And I mean, I, Tyler and I, when we were doing this, I mean, we don't, you know, we, we, I'd say we don't come off like, like car guys. We don't, we don't use the same tactics in trying to mm-hmm. um, uh, sell or buy the cars. Like, like I, like again, me, like I didn't know anything about the car industry up until three and a half years ago. And now I instantly know when I meet a car guy, cause they, they say stuff like, Hey, can I ask you a question? It's like, <laughs> I'd never heard that phrase until I started talking with car people. And it's like, this is like a part, apparently a part of training, right? You got, you got to ask to ask questions. I don't, I don't know. Um, but from our perspective, it's like the, you know, sellers are always trying to measure, you know, do I want to wait and make more money or do I want to go get mugged in a parking lot at Walmart and sell this thing for like a retail price to some stranger? Yeah, I hear you. Um, and it's like that, it's like that general balance that everybody's trying to achieve. And I mean, people post car on Craigslist, post on Auto Trader, they get hit up by 45 dealerships in their local market. Um, trying to evaluate each one of them on who they want to work with, what price they get. Some are giving them prices over the phone. Some say you got to come in mm-hmm. um, oh, all over the place. You know, it's just all over the place and nobody's really guiding or educating people through, uh, through that process. So even back in the day, like that's what we, that's what we tried to do. Um, and it, and it worked really well. The, the, the pivot that we started to make away from focusing on the dealership and focusing on the software is that, 
we're like, because the way that we built that business was we actually used a, let's call it a, um, let's call it a, like, uh, like a bounty system. We started paying friends, family, anybody we could find, send us referrals. We'd actually have this website um, that was a closed off website that only our, like the people we invited to could see, and they could submit a VIN number and the price it was listed for. And we'd ping that up against an evaluator. And if it came back there, that there was like spread between the wholesale costs and what they were asking for it, it got routed to Tyler directly to get on the phone and try and try to buy the car. Oh, that's pretty so cool. Yeah. So we originally structured as like this massive bounty system and we're like, we got to get the people out of this and we got to, we got to have computers do all this. Um, and the only way you can build a reliable, um, algorithmic way of doing that is you need large tranches of data, um, to start mm-hmm. testing and trying. And that really doesn't exist, um, from when a car's posted to the offer to the purchase and then to the actual, let's call it uh, the the liquidation of the asset, maybe on a retail side, like that really doesn't exist soup to nuts. Um, So we said, we got to go out and do it ourselves. And we spent 18 months paying data scientists, trying to shake down uh, big time vendors, big time car dealers to just, you know, lift up the skirt, give us all the data and let us play with it. Um, And we did. And we did that for, for two years until basically this past four or five months, we've delivered our first, you know, models that, mm-hmm. that make all that decisioning uh, for some of our customers, which then we start coming back to why we got laser focused on the, on the private market, which, you know, is a lot, a lot of uh, COVID inducement related, sense. related, but it really came down to everybody we started working with. They were just like, Hey man, like the stuff that you guys are doing on the tech side on the, on the data analysis side, this is awesome. Um, and it's great that you can help us find the best cars that are like rolling through the auction lanes or like from our fleet providers. Like we need you guys to go out and find the cars. Like we need them from the private, the private market off the street. Like how do you help us find those? That hunting model that you kind of had, that bounty model. Yeah. Yeah. And after like a a year and a half of that continuing to come up, it's like, we need to pair everything we've learned on the data and the modeling side and almost go back to our original thesis um, and go all in on that. It was like kind of the marriage of the two things that we felt really strongly about. Um, it's almost like just COVID and some other things just gave us the additional incentive um, and kind of punch in the stomach to go all in in that direction. So, no, you know what? I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, and, and talk about timely, right? And I think at this point in time, we're still kind of discussing and building and developing uh, strategies and tech kind of around the, the social impact that COVID has and and what you guys have put together does kind of support that, that distancing model of, you know, the social impact that we're dealing with right now. Um, You know, the funny though is I think I've heard a lot of content talking about this, about the social distancing and and the impact that it has on our industry. You know, what's funny though, I don't hear enough conversation around the economic impact that COVID is going to have. And it seems like, you know, we're all just kind of in this protected bubble right now. We're still dealing with the social impact. And it's like the, the second shoe hasn't dropped yet. Mm-hmm. And as an industry, we have not dealt with kind of the, the economics of this. So I, I know we're kind of veering off, but I, I just you brought it up and I just think it would be kind of a cool topic. Like, h- how do you see, you know, the economics impact of COVID affecting, you know, the private market and, you know, the dealer market? Yeah, I mean, on, on the private market, I mean, 
our, you know, if you would, if you would have asked me about our mission statement, like two years ago, it was all around like, you know, how do we make these like autonomous environments where cars can be mm-hmm. bought and sold? Like, and I still think there's a, there, there's a, there's a time and a place for that. Um, and now it's all around, like, how do we provide a seller? How do we provide a seller with the most value instantly? Um, and naturally those are, those are, those are directly on the same path. Um, but one is very obvious on who we're trying to serve, uh, versus the other one. I mean, long-term, if you do both of those things, you're creating a ton of liquidity for anybody that owns a car and you're creating a ton of efficiency in the greater, you know, ecosystem of cars being bought and sold. Because in theory, if, if cars are being sold at a higher price, people might think you're eliminating the margin. The reality is you're just ensuring that they actually get sold to the right place. Exactly. And markets are more efficient in terms of distributing the assets to where they're supposed to go, where right now they're, they're, they're highly inefficient. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll digress off that a little bit. I think the, um, like at a, at just like a people level, everybody's trying to make decisions right now that are for the best interests of their family. Exactly. Um, you know, 2021, I think let's call it at least half of it will probably feel a lot like 2020 in terms of, you know, people being really homebound companies, figuring out the best way to get their workforces remote. And I think if you're a, you know, kind of a, you know, a, a normal suburban, normalish suburban, and I don't want to use normal, just like everybody's <laughs> no, normal, but like, the, just like, Hey, uh, uh, you, you got a family in a house, two cars, a couple of kids running around. Um, you probably don't need a second car. That's you true. Know, I mean, really, how many, how many people out there are not going to need that second vehicle? Yeah. And I, I imagine, I imagine that, you know, any, you know, uh, let's say a household income of, you know, 80 to 120 grand, two people working professionals, um, and if they have a second car, that section, that second car would you need, you needed it every day because you had two maybe exactly. grown adults going in different directions. Now you're both at home. You can stagger, you know, maybe when you're doing things with the kids. Um, likewise, if you need to run errands or if you want to run to the gym or whatever, it's like there's lots of in-betweens that can fill that, that secondary void. Um, and, and the burden of that has not been felt yet. There, there's no. a ton of, there's a ton of reasons why, but like you said, I think that shoe's going to drop. You have a lot of people that are that are happy to let that lease come to term, not pick up another car. Of course, maybe they're, maybe they're three years into a six year term, and they will take a loss on it to get rid of it. Like, how do you how do you free up the the, the negative equity in a way where that decision becomes super easy? Um, and then you know those are on on more of the positive side. I think more on the negative side, you have a lot of people that are. You know, they're getting crushed financially, whether they were entrepreneurs and their businesses was, were done or, you know, you had two people working. Maybe you don't have any people working. Um, exactly. That car is not an asset on the balance sheet. You know, you got to get no, rid that's, of it. That's so I mean, true. I mean, think for like the, the average person. Well, I mean, even businesses or entrepreneurs, anybody out there, right? That that vehicle is, is is not an asset. And, you know, we've seen this happen before. We saw this happen in 2008 as the you know, economics at times got tighter. And, you know, it started to kind of come back in as, you know, we felt that financial crunch where, yeah, I mean, you just didn't need that second vehicle. I mean, look, the funny thing is I'm in the exact same boat. I have two vehicles outside. You know, I typically drive 8,000 kilometers a month, approximately 5,000 miles a month is what I drive, right? I, and I'll do an oil change every single month. Almost every dealer in my area knows me. They're like, oh, it's time. I'm like, yeah, it's time. 
Um, <laughs> you know, and that's not the case though. That hasn't been the case for the last nine months. I've probably put in, well, I probably put more mileage on the first three months of 2020 than I did for the rest of 2020 combined. You know, because of that lack of driving. I mean, you know, what's, you know, it's kind of funny. I see it in the marketing world because that's a side that I work on a lot is, you know, there's always been this, you know, trade up event. We want you to trade up, trade up. That's the message, right? I'm actually now seeing downgrade events. Oh, yeah. Where you know, I think dealers are smart. I like this. This is smart, right? This is already kind of having that discussion around, you know, you're driving that larger SUV that's $800 a month. Do you really need that or do you need to get downgraded into that 550 smaller, you know, compact SUV and will that suffice or do you just need to sell it altogether? You know, I'm kind of curious on your thoughts of like, you know, the economics is going to change the consumer. It's going to change the industry. But, you know, back in February um, during the NADA, you know, before kind of all of this, there was so much conversation around the digital transformation of our industry and there were some big players that, you know, were looking like they were going to invest some monster dollars into, you know, what the, the next version of ownership or the next version of how we interact with cars is. And, and it seems like a lot of that's stopped. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on it. It's like, has, has COVID slowed down, you know, kind of the transformation of our industry? I mean, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's almost... I think it's almost made it more obvious that the that the legacy way of doing business has an opportunity to continue. Mm-hmm. Like I think if we were if we were having this conversation last year, even pre knowing about um, COVID, everything was around, you know, obviously anything uh, you know, electric vehicles, um, changing the dealership models, like all these different mobility platforms that were getting launched, like those things felt relatively close. Like yes, man, they did. Like, very close. It, like in the next 24 months, like you could see, like, it wasn't hard to envision, like my kids going to school. If there was like an Uber for kids program where I had a subscription where every day I knew there was a car that was going to come pick up my five-year-old and uh, three-year-old <laughs> and get them to school. Like that didn't seem that crazy. Like, I think everybody was kind of on that bolt of like, how are these, how are these vehicles in an autonomous fashion? Is it going to become more, socially acceptable that you're starting to use these platforms for things that you wouldn't have thought of being normal a few years ago. Um, I think COVID rolled all that stuff back to where, you know, maybe that adoption felt like it was two or three years away. Now it feels like it's, it's, it's eight to 10 years away again, uh, for whatever reason, I think for at the, at the highest levels, you know, uh, a lot of the major manufacturers are changing where they're, spending their dollars, they've gotten out of what they would consider like, like maybe like science projects, uh, because you know, the economic conditions are, 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 are not, are not as safe and secure as they, as they used to be. Um, no, I, I you know, I, I think, I think it has, I think it has, has stalled, stalled things out a little bit, but I mean, if you, I mean, the thing that's kind of crazy in all this is that, um, you know, there, there's, I was talking, I was talking to my, my parents, and like my dad's always joking that, you know, Hey, he's seen the end of the world like five times between all of the, the rhetoric um, that comes out when these things happen, like, Oh, it's the end of the world. Everything's going to change. And he just kind of assured me like, Hey, he's like crazy things happen in the world. And like six months to a year later, it's exactly the same as it was before. Exactly. And that's actually, that's actually my prediction is that um, the way that 
dealerships were doing business pre-COVID by the end of this year, early in 2022, it'll feel more like that than it does to all the futuristic things that we're, that we're talking about now. Yeah, it really did kind of feel like it, it slowed down. Like it felt like we were right there on the edge and it feels like COVID it's, it's not that we've had these micro changes, you know, as far as like communications, um, you know, digital retelling. I hate that word though. I, I gotta be honest with you. I've just, I really kind of hate that word because I still don't think that there's a company out there that truly has nailed down what that really means. You know, it's, it's not just a widget that goes on your website. Like that's, that's not what digital retelling is, but, but, but in the macro though, it did, it fundamentally kind of just, kind of sucked back some of that energy that I felt like we had momentum going as far as what the potential ownership or interaction with a vehicle is. You know, I, I think losing that momentum in industry um, does overly affect, you know, kind of the, the future of of kind of car sales in general. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking more from an operations perspective. How do you think that's going to change kind of the future of operations you know, moving forward, are we still going to be, and you kind of said we're stuck in kind of that existing one, but it's like, how much longer do we have to wait to kind of move into that next, that next section? I mean, I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, no, right? I think I'm a, like, like a dealership operation side, like I'm not even, don't even, don't even put me in the bucket of like, this guy kind of knows <laughs> how they operate. Um, not a clue. I, I think for, for my like observations, I, I almost feel like there's a there's a similarity between how the how the dealership world operates that reminds me about a lot of the case studies I read about Blockbuster. Oh my um, gosh, that's such a perfect analogy. Please please elaborate on. Like if you re- like, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was a if it was a, a stockholder um, like executive summary or what have you, but I, I recall reading something related to. Um, like Blockbuster did this big study on their customers, and it said that people just absolutely loved the the experience of walking through the store and seeing all the things on the shelf, and like um, they, they just loved the experience, you know. And and they they put they they put so much stock and emphasis in this super internal bias study that it it was just like the most obvious portion of confirmation bias you could ever come across. Um, as a, as a, someone who I think understands at a fundamental level, kind of how automotive as an industry functions. Um, but I still think I have a, a, a beginner's mind because I've only been in it a couple of years. I feel like there's this, like, I feel like there's a lot of people set in that stage where they're, they're looking at their own blockbuster report of like people love it the way it is nobody loves it everybody hates it um the the customers don't like coming to your store they 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 just do not there's nothing about coming to a dealership that anybody enjoys um Mm -hmm. and a lot of the reasons to why people feel that way some of them are objective reasons most of them are not most of them are off of one experience that happened um but I don't think you can overturn that by um, basically delivering the same experience, service, and product in a digital format without addressing the the other concerns, the underpinnings of, of why why people feel that way. And I think it's it's very interesting to think about like 
in America, especially like people do like cars. Like I like cars. I think they're super cool. We love like, cars. We, we love owning cars. them. We love driving them. Like, I love we love cars. modifying like, them. <laughs> like, yeah, I like I, I like them. I really do like them. It's really hard to think about another product that people like that connect that, that much like. to. And it just it, it just it just the feeling, the smells, the touch, the sounds, just the the colors. It's it hits us. It hits so many different senses, right? But I, I, I love, because I just want to highlight one thing you just said, because I, I think it's amazing. Uh, the way that you kind of molded that together was, is digitizing the existing experience is not enough to just generate an experience, an, ele an elevated experience enough to say that people are going to enjoy buying a car. And, you know, this is this this is a big push for me. You know, I'm talking to a lot of dealer groups and we're talking about directions. We're talking about for the next five, 10 years. And it's like, understand that you're not in the car business anymore. You're in the experience business. And once you understand that you're in the experience business, that fundamentally shifts your entire mindset around marketing, operations, customer communications. Hell, that probably even shifts your whole mindset around physical buildings, you know, is, is is it really necessary to have a twelve and a half million dollar Taj Mahal? You know, does it like so? So I, I I'm with you. I'm so with you on that. Um, and I love the blockbuster analogy. In fact, actually, a funny story. The last blockbuster uh, just recently closed. Did you see that? Did you see that article about it just recently yes, closing? And I did. Did you see that Airbnb? You could actually Airbnb the blockbuster for for the night and. And you can sleep over in the blockbuster and it's so nostalgic, right? You know, but but to, to your point, though, I, I think right now the way we the experience that we're providing or the way that uh, customers can engage with us is almost to the point where it's becoming a nostalgic thing. And maybe some people want to hold on to it, but that's that's not that's not where we, we can't get to the point where buying a car is a nostalgia thing. We need to be ahead of that. And I think at the end of the day, that's what you're, what's that's the point you're trying to drive home. No. Yeah, I think it's I think it's part of that. I just think of like find me find me another product that people overwhelmingly love, but going to the place where they need to get it, service it, learn about it, they hate it. Such a good point. Like I don't I don't know if you'll I don't know if you'll find that anywhere else. Like um even like let's let's break it down to like super, super, super basic. Um like McDonald's. Like mm -hmm. as a little kid. Like I loved going to McDonald's. Yes. Like, like yeah, the French fries were great, but it was like the experience of McDonald's. Like, I, I would like to think that the affinity towards an American brand like McDonald's is in the similar context to like how someone feels about their brand new car. Like, it's a it's a pleasurable event. But even when you like, you're doing everything you can to stay out of there. And this was like pre Carvana. I mean, I think one of the funniest things is when you when you break down like Carvana's business model. Naturally, they're their dealership is the is the whole world, which changes the economics of a little mm -hmm. bit. They basically built a business on like, we will buy the cars the same way traditional dealerships buy them. We're going to price them pretty close to the same way other dealerships price them. Our main value add is you don't have to go to a physical dealership. Like, they built an eighteen billion dollar company on just like not having to leave your house. So how so? How do you think technology? then kind of supports that, right? Because I think right now, as an industry, we have a tendency of just looking at the technology and how the technology is going to fix our experience issues. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily wrong or right, 
to, to, to look at it that way, but I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that. You know, it, can we expect technology to fundamentally, you know, change that experience? Or is this really something that just we have to look ourselves in the mirror and change it ourselves? Thoughts? Yeah, I think um, in, the, in, the, in all of the uh, wisdom of, of uh, Jeff Bezos, I mean, he says <laughs> our customers are never going to want things to come slower or be more expensive. That is very true. And, and when he breaks down, when he breaks down a lot of what he's pursuing, it's like, you know, a couple of years ago, getting your stuff within two to three days, like that was acceptable. He's yes. like, then it was a day. And he's like, now it's same day in a couple hours. Like, again, kind of I'm time boxing of when I, when I moved to Arizona versus living here now where there's a major distribution center, I believe like in Glendale, which is probably, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe an hour and a half from where I live. Like, like this morning in theory, like if I would have woke up, I could have ordered golf balls, like socks for my kids and a bag of dog food. That'll be at my house by lunchtime. Um, oh man, no, totally you right. So, so take a look at this. I, um, I, I needed an HDMI video capture, a new video capture device. I'm, uh, I want to plug in my cell phone and be able to kind of throw it up on my screen from time to time. Right. It's just the same as you. I have an Amazon, you know, fulfillment center an hour away. I ordered that this morning. I got it 10 minutes ago. It's amazing. It's amazing. Right? Uh, isn't, that, isn't that the coolest thing ever? Sorry, I didn't mean go. I, did, I, and I, and I don't want to trivialize. I don't want to trivialize like the difference between moving something that weighs 5,000 pounds versus that thing that probably weighs three ounces and costs a nickel to make in China. Um, sure. there, there's obviously tremendous differences there. But I think the way that, that, um, the way that potentially delivering that type of an experience to a customer is going to require some creativity. Like um, if we go back to the example of, if we go back to the example of families, you know, you know, they don't need two cars. Maybe they need one and a half. Well, how do you sell somebody half of a car? You know, we've kind of been down the route of, you know, subscription services, whatever. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm envisioning like where, you know, I live in a, like a, like a, a community of like, kind of subdivisions are pieced together. We got an HOA. Um, like I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to go to like those types of constituents and say, Hey, we will rent you a fleet of um, 15 vehicles that we park at the HOA. Um, and for like a monthly rate, like you can use them for up to, you know, five hours a week or something. Um, I think there's going to be different mechanics for delivering those halves um, and it could be as simple as that. It could be like where, you know, uh, uh, a more advanced version of Turo where it's like, hey, you're sharing, like you're agreeing to share that vehicle that you don't use all the time. It'll be parked in your driveway where, you know, you'll let certain people into your network that can share it. And every time, you know, somebody shares it for an hour here, an hour there, like they get billed six bucks an hour or something, whatever. Um uh, and you think about those same types of corollaries with, you know, test driving cars or, or looking at cars like, Hey, let's maybe I'm looking at a, I want to look at a new, um, a 2021 or 22 Tahoe or something. Um, oh, no, you're, you're, you're hundred percent right. You know, um, there's a, we talked a little bit off camera, uh, before we start recording. And this is one that I've been following a lot and actually been working with a little bit is Kinto. Kinto's Toyota's ride sharing mm. program which um, it, which is really impressive in the sense that the technology for the actual uh, ride-sharing uh, application 
is actually installed at the, at the manufacturer level. So these cars are coming off the assembly line with the technology already built into it. I can go on my phone right now. There are six locations right now in the greater Toronto area that I can make a reservation online, a pull up, use my phone to unlock the car and start the car, drive off for a few hours, drive back, drop it off and leave. And so, so that kind of fulfills that, that, that kind of that halfway point. But I, I think for dealers to, to fulfill that type of experience that we're not just, I think it's going to go, look, it's going to be a technology factor, but I think what this is going to, it's going to go beyond just kind of that. It's going to even go into like a, a branding factor because this is a fundamental, we have to shift this and, you know, which is actually kind of fun because you guys have actually just recently gone through a big branding uh, kind of remodeling project. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's what you, it's how you express the value that you bring to the customer through your brand and I think a lot of these existing dealership brands don't necessarily have what it's take to do it. And this is where I see the opportunity for an individual dealership to step in and create that brand. Well, so tell me, tell me a little bit about kind of the what you guys have gone through right now through some of the shifts that you've made in your guys' own branding efforts. Yeah, I mean, even like, like again, probably last year when we met, we were we were rocking the same colors you were. Yeah, like, I remember that. Yeah, bright orange, trying to get attention. Like apparently that played well. Um, but in like like the dealership game dealership world because that was our customer and it's still a a, a massive customer uh, for us today as we went out and started partnering acquiring IP um, and being more focused on on individuals people that are basically trying to sell their vehicle you know you soften up a little bit you start going to like blues a little more <laughs> yeah. custom, um, a little more approachable whatever we want to call it. Um, and you know, we used to have a, an upside down cone. We thought it was really clever. Um, cause it's like a funnel, you know, we're funneling all this great opportunity to our, our customers doorsteps. Um, apparently cones aren't great, like worldwide, like they have a negative connotation or a lot. So it's like just stuff like that. You start thinking, being a little more intentional with how you want someone to feel when they see your name, see your logo, even see your colors. Like we want people to feel invited, warm, safe, empathetic, you know, all, all mm -hmm. of those, all of those things. And it's been a, like, I've never, I've never been around uh, either building a product or, or a service that was catered to or 100% catered and focused on um, helping a consumer. Um, so for me, that's been, a, that's been a mental shift. And anytime you're in one of these like dual sided marketplaces, you're, 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 ser you're serving, two-sided masters, but you also have to know that you have to serve one to get the other and 100%. you have to keep the other one happy to create, uh, uh, let's call it a reciprocal ecosystem for everybody. So it's, it, it's complicated, it's doable. And a lot of other uh, businesses have proven you can do it, but it's, um, it's definitely a shift that you, when you really, when you really pull the, you know, pull the wool back and say, who, who, and what are we really trying to serve? Um, you gotta be as obvious as you can with that answer. And most, you know, Again, at the end of the day, all the good things that we do for um, uh, for a consumer interaction that directly benefits our dealership customers, and I'd be willing to say that the 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 dealerships that we work with today, every day in doing this, they understand that they're just like, listen, you guys are an advocate for us. We want you guys to keep representing yourself a certain way because if you do that, we're getting the happiest, healthiest, engaged seller of a vehicle, which if, you know, they, 
openly say it. Like, it's our job at that point not to mess it up. Mm-hmm, exactly. How do we turn that? How do we turn that if the opportunity presents itself into a successful retail customer? Right. You know, so I, I love again, the fact that it, uh, you use the word intentional, and, and and I think if we can kind of sum up, you know, the entire conversation that we've had today. That, that, that would be kind of the underlying theme of everything that we've talked about is just is, is to be intentional. Look, an experience doesn't happen on its own. All right. If, if, if you want to develop out that new experience and be in the experience business, you need to be intentional. If you're going to build a brand, a brand doesn't happen on its own. You have to be intentional about it. Right. If you're going to continue to move the nettle, needle sorry, of your digital transformation and, and the what it looked, what your dealership looks like in the next 15 or 20 years, you have to be intentional. I mean, everything kind of dies down, uh, comes back to being just in, intentional in your space and having those conversations. I know we're towards the tail end of our time today, Andrew, and this has been a blast. I've had a lot of fun chatting with you, but before I let you go though, for, for everyone that's out there watching and listening right now, and would lo- for those who would love to connect with you and kind of follow along with your journey and your company's journey, what's the best way to do so? No, you bet. I mean, you can you can find us on uh, LinkedIn. The company name is Drivably, D-R-I-V-A-B-L-Y. Um, check us out on our website, drivably.com. Uh, if you're someone who's trying to sell a car, go to drivably.com. If you're a um, uh, if you're a dealer that want wants help in in buying from the street and connecting with people trying to sell their car, you know, you can send me an email, Andrew at drivably.com. Um, we're, we're, we're happy to help, but yeah, uh, LinkedIn or our website is, or my email is going to be a great place to start. Awesome. Hey, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to jam with me today. This has been a ton of fun. You have yourself an amazing day. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for tuning in to the strategy mob podcast with your host, Jason Harris. Don't want to miss new content? Be sure to sign up to be a mobster at strategymob.com to stay in the know. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe.